December 14th, 1992, 6.10 in the morning in Manchester, England. A man by the name of Barry Sutcliffe, along with two of his colleagues, were driving on their way to work when their car was approached by a young woman who could only be described as an apparition straight from a horror movie. The young woman was severely burned, beaten, cut, and it was obvious that she'd suffered some form of torture. Stopping, they got the girl into the car and then immediately drove to a nearby house, that of Michael and Margaret Coop, who proceeded to call for an ambulance. According to Michael Coop, the young woman's hands appeared like ash, her legs were just like raw meat, and her feet appeared to be badly charred. I was struck by how polite the victim was. She was constantly thanking my life for her assistance. Eventually, the young woman was brought to a hospital where she was able to give the name of her six assailants before slipping into a coma and dying on December 18, 1992. However, police were left with a dilemma. From what the girl had said, her attackers were all older friends of hers who, because of British law, would end up getting really slaps on the wrist. The young woman, whose name would become known as Suzanne Caper, would have her murder and torture overshadowed in the British and worldwide press by another horrific crime, the murder of two-year-old James Bolger. This is the death cast and this is blood fire death hello and welcome back to the death cast i am your host best-selling independent author ian totten and i'd like to welcome you to what is ostensibly the third season of the death cast after a long unexpected break in recording Before we get into this week's story, I have the normal plugs. If you would like to follow me on social media, that's Facebook or Instagram, just look for Ian Totten, author. You can also find the official DeathCast page on Facebook. You can also find me on Twitter at Corpse Creek Publishing. If you're interested, please consider checking out the official website, CorpseCreekPublishing.com. There you can find show episodes, updates. You can also join the mailing list and find links to my six novels, the most recent of which is Maggie, which came out on November 30th. While you're there, if you are so inclined, please consider clicking on the donate button. Buy me a cup of coffee or a pack of cigarettes. No amount is too small, and obviously no amount is too large. You can also find the show on your favorite podcast app, such as Apple, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, iTunes, anywhere you find your podcast. If you enjoy what I do, please consider leaving a five-star review. 
if you don't like what I do and consider me someone who supports cop killers, well, you can go fuck yourself. That's a nice little something for someone out there who knows exactly what line of bullshit they were throwing around about me. Alright, now that all the plugs are out of the way, get yourself something to drink, find a comfy chair, sit back and relax. I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. I'm sure some of you are scratching your heads at the name of this particular episode, Blood, Fire, Death. And that is understandable, as normally I give either the killer's name as the show title or one of the victims. This is apropos for this case, however, because blood, fire, and death play heavily into this murder, and is also the title of possibly one of the greatest metal songs ever written by the man who baffled us. As you heard in the trailer, we're looking this week at the 1992 murder of British girl Susan Capper, or Caper, I'm actually kind of uncertain of the correct pronunciation, so I'm going to go with Caper. Now, Suzanne Jane Caper was born in Manchester, England in 1976. There's not a whole lot of information out there concerning her early life but she has been described as a gentle and easily influenced girl. What we do know of her background is that Suzanne never knew her real father and lived with her mother, Elizabeth, as well as her stepfather, John, and an older sister named Michelle. Now, at some point in the late 80s or early 90s, Elizabeth and John separated young girls were sent to live with the local authority, which is a nice way of saying that they were sent to live at an orphanage while things were worked out in family court concerning the family. Eventually, Suzanne and Michelle went and stayed with the stepfather, John. And though I couldn't find a whole lot on it, my suspicion is that there may have been some type of abuse and neglect involved, which led to the children going to live with the stepfather. That is fairly odd in the family court. Usually they try and keep the children with the biological parent as opposed to the step-parent. And around this time, Suzanne began skipping school and became one of those people that flutters from house to house looking for some type of familial affection from her friends, parents, and siblings. And we have all known people like that growing up who they've got stuff going at home and rather be around the family, they will seek affection from their friends' families. You know, a lot of times these families will kind of take the kid in and under their wing, and sometimes even the families will begin allowing the child to start calling her mom or dad. One constant in her life, however, was a woman by the name of Jean Powell, who had been babysitting 
Suzanne since around the time that she was 10 years old. And when Caper began skipping school, she started spending a lot of time over at Powell's house. And Powell lived at 97 Langworthy Road in Boston, which is a small village in Manchester. Powell was known to sell drugs as well as stolen vehicles and parts. Later, Suzanne's older sister, Michelle, would come out and state that she had lived with Jean Powell for a short period of time, but moved out in August of 1992 because she did not like the quote-unquote evil new friends that Powell was associating with. One of these friends was a mother of three by the name of Bernadette McNeely, who had moved into a house just down the street from Powell's. Eventually, McNeely would move in with Powell, and it's this, these two women, along with Suzanne, they began to have a very twisted dichotomy where Suzanne would stay with the couple even though Powell and McNeely routinely bullied and humiliated Suzanne. According to Michelle Caper, her sister would do anything for the two women and routinely pampered them. You will see as we start getting further into this just how twisted the entire scene was as these individuals fed off of each other. Bernadette Powell was separated from her husband, a man by the name of Glenn, and the two of them actually remained friends. And Glenn would regularly visit Powell and McNeely, who was in a relationship with a 16-year-old named Anthony Dudson. Basically, there's no other nice way to put this. Everybody in this house was fucking everybody else. I, it's just what it is. They were absolute white trash. And if YouTube doesn't like it, well, fuck you too, YouTube. Yeah, my dander's up. Oh, well. So you've got this house with six kids, two grown adult women, and a 16-year-old girl. And there's men coming in and out of the house. They're all slopping bodily fluids. And you also have Bernadette Powell's younger brother, Clifford Pook, coming into the picture. And it seems as though everyone involved in the entire situation went to great pains to target and take advantage of Suzanne. There were a number of reasons later given as to why Susanna was eventually killed. But the main ones were that Gene Powell claimed that Susanna tried to basically pimp her out for money. Um, Gene Powell stated that Susanna had tried to persuade her to have sex with a man for money. 
Wow. Anthony Dudson, if you'll remember, he was the 16-year-old boyfriend of Bernadette McNeely. Well, apparently the two of them contracted pubic lice sometime around November of 1992. McNeely turned around and claimed that he must have caught it from Suzanne Caper from a bed that Caper was known to regularly sleep in inside of their home, which doesn't explain really how McNeely got them. I think more realistically, because the this group was so promiscuous, I think that one of them picked it up from either just being disgusting and dirty, or they got it from an outside source and brought it into the home and, you know, shared it with the others. It's like the gift that keeps on giving. Bernadette McNeely later gave her reasons for participating in what followed in that Caper had taken a pink duffel coat that had belonged to her. In any event, on December 7th, 1992, Suzanne Caper was lured to Jean Powell's home. And inside of this home were Jean's ex-husband, Lynn Powell, and Anthony Dudson. Upon coming into the house and held on the ground while Lynn Powell proceeded to shave her head and eyebrows, after which point they made the young woman clean up the hair and put it into the garbage can. I want to warn anyone who's listening, this is only the start of the degradations that this poor young girl was forced to endure. And it's, I don't want to do torture porn, but all of this is really crucial to the entire story of what happened. After cleaning up her hair, Glenn placed a plastic bag over Caper's head and led her around the house, hitting her in the side of the head while she walked. After this point, things began to escalate. It was later stated in court records that Suzanne was lying on the floor, basically curled in the fetal position, as Bernadette and Jean Powell took turns kicking her, beating her with a three-foot-long wooden instrument and a belt. She was then dragged into a bathroom where they forced her to shave off her own pubic hair as quote-unquote ritual humiliation and revenge for having caused, as they claimed, Dudson and McNeely themselves to be shaved. Afterwards, Jean Powell locked Caper in a closet overnight. So basically you have this household with all these different people coming into it. Two of them get pubic lice and they decide 
hey, you know what? We should beat the living crap out of this young woman, torture her, shave her head and her eyebrows, and make her shave her own pubic hair in revenge. Then we're going to lock her in a cupboard. The next morning, Caper was taken out of a closet that she was in and dragged upstairs where she was placed into another one. At this point, all of the principals involved began to become concerned because they feared that Suzanne's cries would upset the children. So on December 8th, it was decided that she would be moved to McNeely's house once at Bernadette's home. Caper was tied to a bed, spread eagle, with electrical cords in a downstairs back room. I need you to remember before we get into the real awful meat of the matter that Jean Powell was a drug dealer and the main drug she was selling was amphetamines. Not only was she selling it, all of the individuals involved in this were heavily using it. I'm not certain which type of amphetamine was involved, but my gut tells me probably meth. At any rate, over the next five days, this group of individuals proceeded to torture Suzanne Caper brutally. This included being beaten and injected with amphetamines, burned with cigarettes, having headphones placed on her head with rave music blasted through them at exceedingly high volumes for long periods of time. One of the songs that they played for Suzanne was called Hi, I'm Chucky, Wanna Play by a group called 1500 Volts. This is important because Bernadette McNeely is said to have started each torture session by stating Chucky's coming to play. In addition to all of this torture, uh, I have to believe just based on the fact that there definitely seems to be some sort of a sexual motivation involved with this crime. The young woman is being is tied to a bed, spread eagle, naked. I am almost certain in my gut that there was some form of sexual assaults going on, although the British press as well as the government generally tries to keep some details like that out of the public arena. There are also performing some sort of sensory deprivation on the young woman by blindfolding and gagging her and leaving her to lie in her own feces and urine, which you're being tortured, the body has a tendency to just let go, and it's obvious that these pieces of shit weren't going to let her get up and go use the bathroom. At some point during the week, Gene Powell's brother, Clifford Pook, arrived with a friend of his, a 27-year-old man by the name of Jeffrey Lee, and upon seeing the 
condition of Suzanne. It was decided that they needed to clean her up, at which point Caper was removed from the bed and placed into a tub that contained a concentrated disinfectant. They then took a wire brush and proceeded to scrub Suzanne's skin until large portions of it began to come off. And you're probably thinking to yourself, how could these two individuals who really weren't involved in the thing show up and then participate in it? The answer is simple. They're human garbage. What happened next just further heaped the indignities on Suzanne Caper. Clifford Pook took a pair of pliers and removed two teeth from Suzanne's mouth, which were eventually recovered at the house. Uh, According to Anthony Dudson, quote, I was stood at the doorway with Jeannie and Bernie. Cliff took her gag off. He told her to open her mouth. He said, right, I'm going to rip your teeth out. He started hitting her teeth with the pliers. He got the pliers on and started pulling it out, but it just snapped and chipped. Then he hit them a few more times. He put the pliers on again and really, really pulled. He pulled Suzanne's head forward until there was a snap and he had the tooth in the pliers. He did the same again and he was laughing. So, give you an idea of really, you know, just how deranged and sadistic these individuals are. But that's not all that took place here because there were a number of chances over the five days of horrific torture where Suzanne might have been rescued. A young man by the name of David Hill, who was 18 at the time, was at the house, and he could hear Dudson in the back room where Suzanne was being kept. He asked what was going on, and Jeffrey Lee brought him into the back room where Caper was being held. Now, according to Hill, he knew just from looking at her that there was some horrific abuse and torture going on, and he later said that he was left alone with Suzanne. Quote, she asked me if I could help her, but I told her I couldn't. I asked her who she was. She said her name was Suzanne. She asked me if I could untie her. I said I couldn't do anything. When pressed on the issue as to why he just basically willingly allowed somebody to be tortured and murder, Hill stated, I thought they would batter me if I'd said they all have got me, wouldn't they? I didn't know what to do. I was too shocked to do anything. So David Hill, you're a piece of shit just like the rest of them. Sorry. But it's even worse because Jeffrey Lee and Anthony Dudson during all of this helped Michelle Caper, if you remember that Suzanne's sister, fix her car. You have to wonder given what happened and what you found out was happening while you were at the house how this affected Michelle to know that she was outside of the home that her sister was being held and tortured in while two of the individuals that were responsible for it were working on your car and acted as though nothing was going on 
Michelle later stated they could have told me then and there the door would have been kicked down and I would have got Suzanne out. I did not think they were capable of savagery. Now I want 10 minutes with them in a back room. It's a wonderful sentiment from her sister, but the reality is I am almost 100% certain that if they had told Michelle what was going on or if she had discovered it, Michelle, more likely than not, would have been brought into the house and subjected to the same treatment as her sister because that's just the type of pieces of shit these people are. We will get back into the story of the murder of Suzanne Caper in just a moment. From Ian Totten, best-selling author of The House of Silver Dawn. Blood Gotch Trilogy, and the throwaway girls of Olympia, comes Maggie, a book which New York Times best-selling author Keith Elliott Greenberg has called a classic detective story, well-crafted, and a supernatural vortex. Maggie, the name was burned into Lieutenant Carl Jablonski's mind like a brand and had been since the night of the fire. He doubted he would ever forget that night or how she had danced in the flames of her burning home. Maggie, who was she and why did no one in Kaya's Crossing seem interested in talking about her or her family? These were questions without answers. Quandaries that drove Carl on as he explored the darkest of the town's secrets, desperate to unravel the knots that tied everything together. Maggie, Carl felt haunted by a visage, even as the local reporter, George Murphy, told him of the blood-soaked history that lay along their path and the horrors that it held. None of it seemed real, and yet it was. The sacrifices, the screams, the pact with the nameless ones, and the hell that she had endured. Maggie, hers was a crime begging to be solved, and he and George are the only ones with enough heart to do it. The real question is, will they survive long enough to do it? Maggie, available 11, 30, 2021, in paperback and hardcover. Ebook pre-orders are now available at Amazon.com. Only from Corpse Creek Publishing. You have been warned. Somewhere around December 14th individuals responsible for Suzanne's confinement and torture heard that her family was going to have her listed as a missing person. Knowing that Suzanne was known to be around their house, they rightly concluded that the house would be one of the first places that the police would look, and it was decided that Suzanne needed to be moved from the home. Early on the morning of December 14th, Suzanne was forced into the trunk of a stolen white Fiat Panda car and driven 15 miles to Werneth Low, which 
is an area near the small village of Romilly in Greater Manchester. Inside of this car was Bernadette McNeely, the Powells, and Dudson. Bernadette reportedly giggled as they drove, once reaching Hornet Blow. Caper was dragged from the trunk of the car and shoved down an embankment into a patch of brambles. Jean Powell later stated that she sat inside of the car while all of this was going down. Although they've gone this far together, I seriously doubt that she did. And if she did sit in the car, it was more likely than not to act as a lookout. At any rate, Bernadette then began to pour gasoline over Susanna, and when Bernadette had difficulty getting the gas to light, Glenn Powell and Anthony Dudson made multiple attempts to light the girl on fire. Eventually, she did catch light while Bernadette stood there singing Burn Baby Burn from the song Disco Inferno, which shows you what a wonderful, upstanding human being this cunt is. After an indeterminate period of time, the attackers left, believing Caper to be dead, and returned to Gene Powell's house, stopping along the way to buy soft drinks. When they arrived at the house, both Jeffrey Lee and Clifford Hoop were waiting for them. As stated in the opening to the show, Susanna Capper Caper was not infected, and she managed to crawl her way out of this ditch that she had been thrown into and flagged down a car. Shows you the resiliency to live at least for a short while that this young woman had. The men who she encountered brought her to the home Hoops later said that she was an extremely polite young woman, despite everything that had happened to her. And according to Michael Coop, she was constantly asking my wife for assistance. Michael's wife, Margaret, went on to state, I instinctively went to put my arms around me, but she pulled away because she could not bear to be touched. Her head was shaved and there were recent, not new cuts on her head. Her face was almost featureless. Her hands were red, raw and black at the fingertips. Her legs were red from top to bottom. She couldn't bear anything on her legs. While at the Cooper home, Susanna drank six glasses of water and show you the extent of her injuries. She was actually unable to hold the glasses herself and had to be have somebody sit there, most likely Margaret, and pour the liquid into her mouth. When she was brought to the hospital, Susanna was able to give the names of her assailants along with their address, at which point she slipped into the into a coma. Susanna was burned on over 80% of her body, and it was so horrific that her mother and stepfather were actually unable to only way they could get a positive ID besides the fact that you know, she was telling them her name was a thumbprint 
off of one hand that wasn't completely charred to ash. Obviously, they're armed with this information. The Greater Manchester Police Force is right on top of it. And led by Detective Inspector Peter Wall, they arrived at 97 Langworthy Road at 7.30 in the morning on December 14th and arrested everyone there. Apparently, Gene Powell and Bernadette McNeely laughed and joked with one another as they were placed in the handcuffs. Obviously, all six of the individuals who were arrested refused to cooperate with police and in fact stated that they had nothing to do with Susanna's assault. It wasn't until Anthony Dudson's father became involved and pleaded with his son to tell the truth that the officers learned anything outside of what Susanna had told them. According to Detective Inspector Wall, quote-unquote, as the story began to unfold, we just couldn't believe it. I kept asking myself how one human being could do this to another. Officers wept as the extent of Suzanne's suffering was revealed. And it tells you just how horrific it, this is that people at the police station took up a collection and sent flowers to the hospital where Susanna was in a coma. And further tells you just how horrific this is. British police have gone on the record and stated that the horrific nature of this assault in British history is only surpassed by that of the Moors Wars, which were committed by Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. And if you don't know that story, don't worry, because I will be covering that this year on the DeathCast. So, now we have all six of the defendants in custody, and on December 17th, they were brought before magistrates, which just means they were taken to court and remanded into custody, which basically means you're staying in jail until you go to trial. Kind of like in, in America where they don't give you bail, depending on the severity of your crime. They were charged with kidnapping and an attempted murder. However, when Suzanne passed away on December 18th, this was changed on the 23rd of December to murder. The inquest, which is basically the grand jury hearing before the trial, began on January 8th of 1993. Dr. William Waller, a pathologist, testified that Suzanne had suffered 75 to 80% burns and that it was consistent with having gasoline thrown over her and set ablaze. He also stated that her chances of survival had been minimal. Further going on to point out that Suzanne's death was not so much caused by the brutal torture she had suffered as it was to complications which arose from the burns. 
before his testimony was completed, Dr. Lawler stated to Caper's family, I offer you, not just on my behalf, but on behalf of the whole nation, my very deepest sympathy and condolences at this tragic happening to your young daughter. The trial of these six began on November 16, 1993. Jean Powell, age 26, her ex-husband Glenn Powell, age 29, Bernadette Neely, age 24, Jeffrey Lee, age 27, Clifford Cook, aged 18, and Anthony Michael Dudson, aged 16. All six of the accused took the stand during their trial, which is never a good sign for the defense, especially when your people that you're defending are so obviously guilty as these six were. And every one of them attempted to minimalize their part in the crimes. During the course of the trial, Clifford Pook was cleared on murder charges at the direction of the judge. On December 16, 1993, the jury began deliberations and took 9 hours and 52 minutes to reach their verdicts. Bernadette McNeely, who seems to me mastermind behind the entire thing was found guilty of murder. She was given life imprisonment with a minimum tariff of 25 years, guilty of conspiracy to cause grievous bodily harm with 20 years, guilty of false imprisonment with a sentence of 20 years. Jean Powell, guilty of murder, life imprisonment with a minimum tariff of 20 years, guilty of conspiracy to cause grievous bodily harm 20 years, and she pled guilty to false imprisonment and received 20 years. Glenn Powell, guilty of murder, life imprisonment with a minimum tariff of 25 years, guilty of conspiracy to cause grievous bodily harm 20 years, guilty of false imprisonment 20 years. Jeffrey Lee, pleaded guilty to false imprisonment 12 years, acquitted of murder, acquitted of conspiracy to cause grievous bodily harm, how the fuck that one's possible, I have no idea. Anthony Michael Dudson, guilty of murder, detained indefinitely with a minimum tariff of 18 years, guilty of conspiracy to cause grievous bodily harm, 15 years, pleaded guilty to false imprisonment, 15 years. Clifford Pook, pleaded guilty to cause to conspiracy to cause grievous bodily harm, 15 years, pleaded guilty to false imprisonment, 15 years, acquitted of murder. And it's been stated that as the sentences were read out, two of the jurors yes, and in the gallery, people were heard to be screaming, yes, yes. Obviously, there were appeals, and Jeffrey Lee appealed against his sentence, which was reduced from 12 years to 9 years on November 4th, 1994. Anthony Dudson had his tariff cut from 18 years to 16 years. He eventually ended up appealing against this, stating that the judge had failed to reflect the continuing obligation to have regard to Dudson's welfare. Fuck you, Dudson. He was moved to an open prison in 2019. Gene Powell and Bernadette McNeely were granted an appeal to have the lengths of their sentences reviewed in June 2012, 
Bernadette McNeely's sentence was reduced by one year. year. Bernadette McNeely couldn't keep her ass out of trouble, however. She was incarcerated at HM Prison Durham with Rosemary West and Myra Hindley, who, if you'll recall, I've covered the West family in Season 1, and we will be getting to Myra Hindley. During a routine security check in 1996, letters were uncovered that found that McNeely had been having an affair with the prison warden, Mike Martin. Martin ended up resigning before he could face disciplinary action, while McNeely was immediately transferred to HM Prison Newhall. Jeffrey Lee was released from prison early in 1998, with Clifford Pook following in May of 2001. They were both released on license, which for people not familiar with the term basically means they're on probation. Bernadette McNeely, you remember her, she's the fucking cunt that was the catalyst to all of this, was released from prison in December of 2014. People want to talk about hating prison reform in the United States? Fuck no. Great Britain needs fucking prison reform. These six pieces of shit committed one of the most horrific acts of torture and murder that is possible to do to another human being, and three of them are out at, uh, you know, to do whatever they want with their lives. I'm sorry, but just my opinion, all six of these sorry motherfuckers should have been freaking dragged out back and shot. Why? Because it's obvious that they have nothing to contribute to society if they are willing to go to the lengths that they did to enact revenge against someone for supposedly giving them pubic lice and stealing the jacket. It, it's pretty obvious that they have no regard for human life, so why should anyone have regard for their life? Sorry, not sorry. It's the way it is. Alright, that is the death cast for this week, first episode of Season 3. Again, I am your host, best-selling author, Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you once again for sticking with me and coming along on this really horrific journey. We will be back in a week with another episode, and we're staying right in Britain because they have whole slew of awful for us to dig into. The Death Cast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Until next time, stay morbid.
welcome, welcome to, to the Dead Cast.